It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Our first year of the pandemic especially was characterized by us trying to work out what was going on and just going for long walks um, every morning and every evening around our block, um, trying to make sense of the world. And a lot of Liz's ideas um, and the theory that she was reading about have found their way into my work. That's science journalist Ed Young. His wife, Liz Neely, is also a science communicator and a believer in the power of story to make science clear and vivid. Stories are anecdotal and personal by nature. We assess them in a completely different way than evidence-based argumentation. And so I think they are so powerful and they can be used ethically as a part of rigorous science communication. I talked with Ed and Liz while they were both squeezed into an impromptu recording studio, which was a closet in their apartment, a perfect venue for collaboration. This is going to be great because I love to talk about communication and you are two experts in communication. (laughs) <laughs> from, from slightly different angles, but it's one. I love mm-hmm. what you said, Liz, once that we're all science communicators now, all of us, especially now with COVID. Oh, absolutely. Our friends and our family are all trying to figure out what to do, what's happening. And so we are in positions of sharing information, translating information. Sharing, and it's not just COVID, sharing yeah. misinformation. It, hopefully not. Hopefully not. Doing our best not to. Yeah, that I want to get into that later. But let me ask you, I'm curious about how you both met. Here you are, <laughs> one of you, Ed, a journalist, author, and Liz, a trainer of communication. There must have been a supernova of communication on your first <laughs> meeting. That's right. And hilariously, we actually met at a science communication conference. So... You know, classic boy meets girl at a SciComm conference story. Wow, someone missed a plane, and it meant that I got to step into their spot to facilitate a workshop with Ed. And I had strong feelings and opinions, as I usually do, mm-hmm. and told the scientists in the room that they are not show ponies. Their job isn't to impress journalists. And from there, I think we had a series of productive arguments over years. <laughs> oh, so you you actually did meet cute. It was the nerdiest rom-com story. <laughs> <I've ever 
You mentioned that you disagreed. What was the nature of that disagreement? Oh, so can I tell this? Yes, you tell it, please. (laughs) I get to frame it, and then you can attempt to reframe. Damn it. (laughs) So I I started in science. I'm a marine biologist by training. And I got very interested in power and decision-making. And I wanted to understand— You mean among fish or what? Oh, no, among people making decisions on things like climate or fisheries Ah, management. Yeah. And so I never was satisfied with answers that came from professionals that were like, oh, well, this is what my editor likes, or this is how we've always done it. Mm. I wanted to know what research is there about how people make decisions or how they search for information. So I was really into the science of science communication. And Ed disagreed. (laughs) And as a practitioner, someone who professionally communicates science, I found a lot of the literature in the science of science communication, um, though like theoretically useful, was actually practically not that useful to me. It didn't have a massive impact on the craft that I was trying to um, perfect. What what Liz and I still continue to, to try and suss out is this boundary between theory and practice and how to actually effectively bridge that divide in a way that mutually enriches. And I think this has been really important for us, is understanding that communication does have science components to it, but it is an art, that there is the intellectual and the emotional coming together (laughs) and finding ways in which we can use the theory and some of the empirical evidence coming out of risk perception or science communication research in our daily lives as well as in our work. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the boundary between theory and practice. Liz, your new company, Liminal Creations, puts you at a boundary too. Is it that same boundary or what what boundary are you talking about? I think it can be. Mm -hmm. So with Liminal, a lot of what I'm trying to do is help researchers figure out How can they launch new initiatives or programs? Where can they make the biggest difference in big conversations about the kind of work that they do? And so the theory can be really helpful in understanding the landscape and improving their mental model about why they might choose one strategy over another. What I love to tell people is, my job is not to train you so that you're a robot or to make you overthink it so you're wondering, what should I be doing with my hands? But instead, it's looking for the thing that lights up a researcher, their magnificent obsession. So I tell them, I want you to be authentically you. Maybe that's big and bold and wild. Maybe it's quieter. And It's okay. It doesn't have to be happy. It could be sad or reflective or curious. So it's you and one notch extra. Ed, did any of these ideas of Liz's drip over on you or were you already coming out of your own mold? No, no, very much so. Um, We talked about the pandemic a little bit. Mm -hmm. And our first year of the pandemic especially was characterized by us trying to work out what was going on and just going for long walks um, every morning and every evening around our block, um, trying to make sense of the world. And a lot of Liz's ideas um, and the theory that she was reading about have found their way into my work. Um, 
I think less like the science of science communication stuff that we've talked about, but a lot of um, hmm. the sociological work that she'd been reading up on. My, the, the concept that really springs to mind is called the Stockdale paradox, um, which Liz introduced me to. So, do you, you introduce me? Yeah, to no, you it. tell it because you tell it better than I do. So, this is a story that resonated with me. I grew up in the military. Um, all over the world. And so when I read about Admiral James Stockdale, um, who had been held prisoner of war for a very long time and tortured routinely over the course of seven years. In what war? Vietnam. Uh And when they asked, how did you survive? He told a story that when people came in to the prison, the optimists would say, we'll be out by Easter. And Easter would come and go. They would say, we'll be out by Christmas. Christmas would come and go. And then Easter would come around again, and they would give up hope. The pessimists just gave up hope from the beginning. But the Stockdale paradox, and what he said was the key to his own survival, is the ability to simultaneously confront the brutal reality of the moment. So look at the truth, no matter how horrible it is, straight in the face, but still maintain an indomitable hope that there was an ending to this story, that there was a way forward, a way out. And so I think holding on to that as a goal for our science communication, that we are curious, we are open to new data, we are not going to be ruled by our emotions, whether it's fear or anger or exhaustion, Mm -hmm. but that we still have hope. Yeah, and that's, that's important. Right. And there's there's a lot of that that I've tried to um, maintain myself and also infuse into the pieces. Um, I think writing about the pandemic and what it means for us all is frequently incredibly grim. Um, but the, you know, the overly optimistic view um, threatens us. I think, you know, trying to move past it beyond before we are actually ready to is a very costly error and one that's reflected in the Stockdale Paradox story. And so like that story is in one of my earlier pieces. I think I wrote about it in April. Um, And it's also a a sort of overarching framework for a lot of the work that I've done since. And that definitely all comes from, you know, one of those early morning walks, um, just trying trying to make sense of all this. Do you both get a similar sense of any pushback from scientists? In my experience, offering to train scientists to communicate 10 years or 11 years ago was much harder than Mm -hmm. it is now. But, Ed, do you get scientists who are wary of being interviewed by you? And, and Liz, do you get scientists who don't want to be trained? Mm. Um, Not so much. I think people are um, very reasonably nervous about having their views misrepresented or being misquoted. We spend a lot of time asking how we can earn people's trust. Um, but I think the real question is how we can ourselves prove to be more trustworthy. Um, and so when I interview people, I try and be espouse all the values that I try and put into the work, open-minded curiosity, empathy, like genuinely listening mm. to people so they feel they're in a conversation, much like this interview, rather than, you know, me just working off a list of questions. And I think that helps to put them at ease. I'm also very upfront at the start about what my thinking is. So usually when I write about a pandemic piece, when I start, my first salvo is here is the idea behind this piece here's what i'm currently thinking about it what are your reactions to that 
And so I lay all my cards out on the table so no one should ever read a piece and then be surprised about the angle that I've taken. Yeah, that that's really important. One of the things that I've been disappointed with after being the, the subject of a thousand or more interviews was that I would be quoted as saying something, but I hadn't brought the subject up. The interviewer mm-hmm. had brought it up. So it's quoted out of context, like my opinion of bikinis or something, which I, which I, don't, I don't really have an opinion about bikinis. But if I suddenly in the interview start talking about them, it sounds like that's, that's what's on my mind. But you're taking the the scientist in as a partner in a conversation. Right, yeah. I, I think um, there's always a bit of tension. You know, journalism always has to hold a bit of its a distance from its sources. I'm not writing to please my sources. But that doesn't mean that you can't show them the utmost respect. I think a lot of the best um, stuff that I've got from my interviewees has come through them feeling open maybe even a little bit vulnerable and willing to share what they really think about something. So how about you, Liz? Do you find that you get pushback? Do scientists say, it's not my job yeah. to be a song and dance person. Uh, I just need to give them the facts and let them take it from there. I mean, I'm guilty of saying those things myself. Oh, really? <laughs> when I was a graduate student, all I wanted to do was be the most, the best scientist possible to live the life of the mind, and to immerse myself in logic and rigor and data and fact, because those things gave me security, and it was my passion. Um, And I was afraid that being emotional or using something like storytelling was at best frivolous and at worst maybe manipulative. And so I think I have seen researchers start to change over the past 15 years um, and recognize that we can't separate our human selves from the science that we do and the science that we share. And we're, story, we're storytelling we're animals. We're animals. Tell and about the person who said they didn't feel emotions. <laughs> I did one time have someone in a training, a researcher, standing in front of me red-faced with their fists clenched, shaking, saying, I do not feel emotions about (laughs) science. But I think there's something really important here and a broader point. We had set up a false dichotomy that you can either be logical or you can be emotional. You can either be, Mm. you know, this admirable, high-status, objective, dispassionate researcher or something else. But we know that that construction of what a scientist is or how they act is really narrow and limiting. And what about storytelling? Do you both feel strongly that it's a good element to pursue? Do you have different opinions about it? Well, we'll find out. Mm-hmm. As we, so here's where <laughs> I stand. I think stories are a tool, just like any other tool. We use them to make sense of the world, to imagine other people's motivations and those things. But they're a tool just like a hammer is, right? You can use a hammer to build a house or you can use it to break kneecaps. Like stories are anecdotal and personal by nature. We assess them in a completely different way than evidence-based argumentation. And so I think they are so powerful And they can be used ethically as a part of rigorous science communication. 
So just going off what Liz said, they are a tool, which means you have to know exactly when to use them, and they're not going to be a suitable tool for all occasions. So, you know, I've seen a lot of work on the pandemic and a lot of um, some books written about it, which use um, personal storytelling, so um, narratives about specific people as a device to frame the the, the work. Um, but I think that's sometimes problematic with the pandemic because often a lot of the challenges we face um, and the the reasons why the pandemic has been so bad um, are entirely structural. So they're, they're societal. You know, the 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 um, talking about how uh, one person experienced the trials and tribulations of COVID doesn't necessarily highlight. You know, the problems with our nursing homes or our prisons or our crumbling public health infrastructure. Mm. So right, a lot right. of what I've tried to do has been to look at, take that systemic lens, which can be complementary with personal storytelling, um, but, but you know, you sort of have to do the, the two together. So a lot of the pieces I've written about things like healthcare workers struggling have tried to use both of those tools, like um, people's stories, but um, always trying to zoom out with a larger lens to look at the context in which those um, protagonists live. I also think that um, stories don't even necessarily have to have characters or not even like human characters. So I think you can tell a compelling story about an idea or about a field. Um, and I've written pieces um, about the fall and rise of public health over the 20th century and how um, its values, its ideals changed over that time. Um, and I think that you, you can do some interesting stuff with who the protagonist is in the story you're telling. Certainly. I think there's two things that you just said. Uh -oh. One is we use the word story in a very flexible way. Mm -hmm. We use it to define lots of different things. But also you said to trace like issues and ideas rising and falling over time, they don't just rise and fall over time on their own. Those are yep. people, those are characters True. that drive that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm hearing one of those afternoon <laughs> walks. Yes, that's right. This happens a lot. <laughs> it's good to hear communication at work. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing it. We're doing the thing right now. <laughs> My favorite question to ask Ed when he's telling me something about the latest pandemic science is, is it though... <laughs> I And I think this is an important part of the work that we all need to do is to question, not just, I, of course, I believe you. I find you very credible. <laughs> oh, my God. You but gonna... I would like to get to how do you know what you know? How strong is the evidence for that claim? Yeah, except you always give me such a hilariously hard time about that, which helps the work improve. But then the one time I took Liz on a reporting trip for my book, and introduced her to some actual scientists who we went on a field excursion with. She was all like, that is fascinating. <laughs> Maybe they just were telling really excellent, <laughs> you know, science Good communication. Stories. That's right, that's right. When we come back from our break, Ed Young tells me how Liz Neely inspired his new bestseller. It's called An Immense World. And it's an exploration of how other animals sense the world in ways that we never can. Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid, which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One, 
The proceeds from sponsors and donors support the nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message. Either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clear and vivid. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clear and vivid. And thank you. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Ed Young and Liz Neely. Ed, what you said before about, about not having to have a human as the hero of the story, that's true in your new book, too, isn't it? An Immense World, where you're looking at how other animals sense the world. Yeah, and uh, funnily enough, the uh, Liz has her hand in the origin of this book too. How is that? Liz did her PhD work on the visual systems of reef fish, so the kind of colours that they perceive. Is that right? That's right. Great. Um, and we were sitting um, in a rainy London cafe, and I was going through my periodic like winter bout of self-flagellation and thinking and claiming that my career had peaked and that I was never going to find another book idea um, and all was lost in, in ruin. And Liz said, why don't you just write about the way as animals perceive the world? Because this was something that both of us cared about and, and had been into and, and found interesting. And I think she was also tapping into this um, this need to instill a sense of awe, instill a sense of awe and wonder in nature um, this, you know, our we we talk a lot about the need for empathy um, in others. Um, at the core of this book is a call to extend that empathy in its fullest measure to all the other creatures we share the world with. There's many layers of stories in the book. Mm-hmm. There's the stories of the creatures themselves. What what might it be like to experience the world as a bat or an octopus or a manatee? Um, but there's also the stories of the researchers, um, you know, the, the scientists um, who, who, through whose work we have a better sense of what other animals sense. And I love the idea of having 
better empathy, more empathy for our fellow animals through the device of imagining what, it, if it's at all possible to imagine how they sense the world in so many different ways. It's a wonderfully impossible exercise. It, it is. I, I, I love that description. And, and I, I have something quite like it in the intro. You know, I, um, Thomas Nagel, an American philosopher, famously wrote this essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? And his point of view was, um, well, fundamentally, you would never know. Um, it, it is, it's, it's too beyond our um our understanding simply because a bat is so different. It is anatomically different. It is neurologically different. And you can make educated guesses, um, but you're never going to be able to bridge that final gap. You're not, you're not going to be able to leap that final chasm. But you should try. And there is you know, glory in the striving here. I think um, making um, what... Um, psychologist Alexander Horowitz called informed imaginative leaps um, mm. is is a wonderful thing to do and I think really deeply profoundly human um, I make this point in the book that the reason why different animals have different umwelts different um, pieces of sensory information that they can tap into different sensory worlds um, is that there's just too much information out there. There's so much stimulus that if we were if we were aware of all of it, um, we would be overloaded. We don't have the the neural capacity to deal with it all, and more importantly, we don't need to do deal with it all. Our senses filter in the types of information, the kinds of stimuli that each species needs, and that means that to learn about the rest of it is a gift that is very uniquely human and um, and a, a choice. It is something that we must decide to want to learn about. Um, and I think there's, there's something really wonderful about that, that even just this act of imagination, even though the, the end point of that work will never be fully accomplished, that the mere act of it is such a very innately human thing to do and also deeply rewarding. I loved how you give us a chance to empathize with dogs <laughs> yeah. on a walk, going out and smelling everything. I, 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 I often think, well, I guess that's the daily newspaper being read. Right yeah, there. we think about this a lot. So we, um, about a year ago, uh, we got our pandemic puppy. His name is Typo. He is a corgi. <laughs> yeah, typo. Typo. Um, Hard to catch, often embarrasses you. <laughs> His full name is Typography when he's being naughty. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a joy to take him on walks. Um, we love thinking about what he's smelling. Um, we try and give him a chance to um, dictate the pace of at least one walk a day where he's following his nose and we're following him. If he wants to stop and explore, we let him. We're not in any hurry to get anywhere. Um, and it's wonderful. Like He will just screech to a halt in the middle of the um, pavement because he smelled something that we can't sense and we don't know anything is there. And when we go on walks around the neighborhood, I, and Typo's sniffing everything. He's sniffing trees. He's sniffing places where other dogs have peed. Like, I think of that as him checking on social media. Mm-hmm. You know, that feels 
identical to me, um, to us, like scrolling our Instagram feed. You know, he gets an update about what all the dogs in the local area, where all the local dogs have been, probably stuff about, you know, what they're up to, what they just ate, what their health status, I don't know. But I think it's a deep, I think that act of smelling is a deep act of social exploration for him. Mm -hmm. Oh, I was thinking about how all of this is a really good metaphor for communication Mm. in general. Hmm. Just because another animal or another person experiences the world so differently from us, whether that's because they have different sensory apparatus or because they're living in a different body or a different place or have had a different childhood. Being able to leave our own imagination and our own very specific way of thinking about what's important or what's right and to whether that's you know pausing with the dog instead of striding along down the street because I'm trying to get to the end of the walk or stopping and listening to a partner in conversation rather than trying to convince them I know what's right about the science. I think so much of this is about mastering our own interior worlds Mm -hmm. and being open to the experiences of others. Yeah, and to I think to also appreciate the boundaries of your own knowledge and experience. Mm. I mean, part of the whole, part of why I find the whole Umwelt concept to be so um, so attractive. Would you explain the Umwelt? Sorry, uh, yes. It's the idea that um, uh, every animal can sense um, certain aspects of its environment, but not all of them. So... Um, uh, red as a color is part of my umwelt, but it wouldn't be part of a bee's. Um, echo, you know, the, ec- the the echoes that rebound from the sounds you make aren't really part of my umwelt, but they are very much part of a bat's. Um, so, um, you know, the the there is a whole world of of information, of sounds and smells and sights and other sensory cues out there. We're only each each species is only tapping into a thin sliver of that, and that's the umwelt. And um, that, that's the the sliver that's useful to us. That's right. One of the things I love about the concept of the umwelt is that it means that even things that are really familiar and everyday, um, we we only understand a small part of it. Um, so uh, a flower um, might have patterns on it that are completely invisible to us but are visible to a bee or a bird. Um, a plant uh, in our backyard might be thrumming with um, vibrational songs that insects upon it are making and that we can't hear. So things around us all the time, things that we know very well and, and feel mundane and boring, um, are actually full of stuff that we are not privy to. And I think that that is, like Liz said, a really good reminder that um, we're only accessing a thin sliver of what there is to know, even in things that we think we know well. And sort of a call not just for empathy, but for kind of open-minded curiosity. To- and in the process of communicating, I think we've touched on, I think Liz touched on this, that the people who we might consider our audience for what we're trying to communicate are are motivated by different things. And the person who believes he or she is doing the communicating, because I think of it as a partnership, mm-hmm. not a one-way street, that person has an obligation to find out what gets the other person going. 
this is true, Ed, when you're writing, the person you're communicating with is not there in time and space. But can you nonetheless think about how they're taking in what you're writing? I can try. Um, you know, I, I try very hard when I'm writing pieces to answer the questions that I think a reader is going to ask. Mm. Um, and sometimes the most satisfying pieces of feedback are from people who, th- who say things like, um, it, it was like every time I asked a question after reading a paragraph, it was answered in the next one. Yeah, that's a great feeling. It's, it's great feedback. Yeah, it really feels like I'm, I'm doing my job then. Um, but I think that you know, you one can tie oneself in knots over this, and I think mm. you can never, you can never entirely audience-proof a piece of work, um, especially because, as we've said, the audiences are so diverse, and because I think that um, we we sometimes have a, a, a too limited view of how the work is is read and and perceived. So, you know, I I can think like, okay, the Atlantic's readers are going to read my pandemic pieces, and they're going to digest what's ever in the pieces, react to that, and and full stop. But I've had so much feedback from people who've used the work as means of starting mm. up conversations with other people. You know, people who've said, like, these es- these essays and these, these um, stories have helped me open up conversations with, like, my, I don't know, my conservative uncle or my sceptical roommate. Um, so there, there's a way in which we're not just talking to people as audiences, but we're giving them the um, tools to have their own conversations that I think is actually a really profound thing that we get to do. And you've written about this a lot, right? Oh, I'm just grinning because yeah. I said, you know how we know that? You know what you're describing? That's called two-step flow theory. Nice. <laughs> that there are... <laughs> <laughs> That's science of science communication. Yeah, it is. I think we've given it short shrift. But so, yes, this idea that direct exposure to messages, whether that's in the media or a story or whatever, is one thing. But that we make sense of the world by then talking about it with trusted, you know, friends, partners, loved ones to say, like, did you hear this? What do you think of that? Does that ring true? What else do you know? And that collaborative sense making is, I think, really what we're going for. Mm-hmm. It's been fun hearing you two collaborate on this. I've really enjoyed it. And we're about <laughs> almost at the end of our time. But we always end every show with seven quick questions. And the answers can be quick, too, because there are two of you, and I'd like to get answers from both of you. What do you wish you really understood? Musical theory. How about you, Ed? More on history. I've enjoyed learning about the history of public health, and I want to learn more about the history of all the things that that I write about. I think it's really important, and we sometimes don't make enough room for it. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> You're looking at each other. <laughs> um, I think it's almost a non-starter to do that. I think if someone believes something that I believe to be untrue, um, I think it's much more important and productive to try and understand where they're coming from, like what kinds of values um, and uh, you know norms of identity go into that. Sometimes I just like to get personal and say, I'm not sure I agree with that, and then say why. It takes a kind of courage sometimes to just directly Mm. confront 
especially if it's somebody you like and you love. We often talk about it imagining an, an antagonistic audience. But what happens when a person you really care about is saying something really wrong? Yeah, I think what this comes down to, and sorry, this is going to be a long answer now, but um, it what is your reason for wanting to tell someone that they're wrong mm. about something? Are you doing it from a position of love and caring? Do you want to change their minds because it matters to you, to them, to their loved ones? Or do you just want to tell them that they're wrong? And I think if it's the latter, it's basically a non-starter. But if it's if there are deeper motivations, there are deeper ways of, that's fighting, of getting really to it. That's a really good point. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you took the time to say that. that that's... Very helpful. All right, I'm getting warmed up here. Number three. uh, Okay, number three. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, no. (laughs) My little nephew, we were driving. We went by some cows, and he said, you know cows make milk. I'm like, yes. And he said, they carry it around in their udders. And I said, yes. And then he said, and then they chew it up and spit it out, right? That took some work. (laughs) Um, I don't think I have an answer here because I write about things like hagfish slime and hippo poop and mouse penises. I I don't think I'm like my boundary for what counts as a weird question is so far is so far and distant and removed that I don't I'm not even sure. I had a friend once text me, do fish have muscles? And he was a, a banker. He said, "We're out drinking. We need you to answer this." <laughs> Our friend Aaron recently asked us if it's really true that he couldn't take a chimp. So, Aaron, if you're listening to it, to this, that was a terrible question, and a chimp would absolutely annihilate you. <laughs> well, I'm going to move on to the next question. How do yeah, you stop right. a compulsive talker? Hmm. Or do you? It depends on who they are and who you are. (laughs) Yes, I guess that's true. I learned a fantastic technique by watching Dr. Jane Lubchenco work a room um, at a cocktail party that she would put her hand out and people would go to shake it. And she would say, and she meant it, it was so good to talk to you. Or it was so nice. I really appreciated this conversation. In the middle of their diatribe. She would wait for a pause. She's very good at that kind of thing. But she would end it gracefully. And I thought, sometimes you do need to draw a boundary, especially women are socialized, Mm -hmm. to just sit and be polite and wait. And I think there are ways that you can protect other people's feelings while also maintaining your own. Yep. Do you have a technique, Ed? Uh, I don't. I'm much more... I'm much less socially graceful about it than Liz is. So I tend to, if I only do it, I do it more brusquely, but I also only do it when it actually really matters. So I only, I, I try and only interrupt people when they are taking up too much space in a room full of other people who are not being heard. And then I feel like, you know, it's a way of, it's a way of like reasonably flexing power and privilege to actually then create space for other people. Yeah. Mm. Okay, let's say you're at a dinner table and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you begin a really authentic conversation with that person? I think we put too much emphasis on 
opening up a question and having a plan, like a strategy, mm-hmm. and not enough emphasis on actually listening to what they've said and reacting genuinely to it. Yeah. I think starting from a place of silence is hard, but once someone starts talking, um, you know, I think you can get a long way from like listening and asking questions based on what they said. Um, it's sort of a really fundamental skill that we, well, a lot of us seem strangely unpracticed at. So I guess the trick is to say, if nobody has said anything yet, say something, anything, and get them to say something beyond, mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, next to last. What gives you confidence? Doing my homework. <laughs> um, people who fight for things that they believe in. Ah, okay. Last question. What book changed your life? Hmm. Parable of the Sower, Octavia Butler. I read science fiction as a way to understand imagined futures and the reflecting the worries of our times. And that book just knocked my socks off. Hmm. How about you, Ed? Hmm. I think changed my life is strong, but like books that made a huge impression on me. Um, H is for Hawk by Helen MacDonald, I think really, um, really changed my perspective of what a nature book could be. It was so beautiful and literary and humane um, that um, I think it made me, re- I, I was reading it just before writing my first book and it just made me think like, why can't all writing be like this all the time? Mm-hmm. Well, I sure have enjoyed this conversation with you both. It was fun and full of stuff. And I, Thanks, Al. I'm so glad that you took the time to thank talk. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate it. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Liz Neely is the founder and principal of Liminal Creations a design firm focused on science and communication. Until two years ago, she was executive director of the Story Collider, where she produced personal stories of science told on stage. Ed Young is a science journalist who reports for The Atlantic. His coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic has won him numerous awards, including a Pulitzer Prize for explanatory journalism. His new book is An Immense World, how animal senses reveal the hidden realms around us. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with astrophysicist Katie Mack. 
She's written a vivid account of how the universe will end, and remarkably, she's made it sound kind of fun. Among her several scenarios for what she calls the end of everything is one where in some far-off place in the universe, a new kind of space pops into existence. And if that happens, it creates a, a bubble of this new kind of space that we call a true vacuum. And the true vacuum bubble would expand at about the speed of light and engulf everything and change the physics within that bubble to physics that we cannot exist in. Our atoms would not hold together anymore, um, and it would just kind of destroy everything. And you wouldn't see it coming because it would happen at the speed of light. You wouldn't feel it either. Like, it, it would happen so quickly that you wouldn't really notice. It would be real, real bad. Katie Mack, who finds solace in everything having to end by living a life that has meaning in the moment. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Ross has all the spring deals you want, so you can say yes to more looks for you and your budget. Two tops for less? Yes. Dad shorts for the weekend? Yes. Mini skirts for less than online? That's a yes for you and your bank account. Find your certified yes for me moment and save 20 to 60% off department store prices every day at Ross. Hurry in for spring deals today. Items and styles vary by store. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.